She pointed to her brain and she was like, I feel like there's nothing there anymore. In one year, he totaled three cars and he was arrested three times. I told myself, I made a promise to myself a long time ago, um, when I realized what alcohol was doing to my life, that yeah, I'm never gonna drink, I'm never gonna take a sip of that. From ZMB Media and Jewish Community Services, this is Hooked. Stories of loss, love, and most importantly, hope, as told by recovering drug addicts, family members, and friends. I'm Howard Resnick, Manager of Prevention Education at JCS. In this episode, you'll hear from two young women who each experienced growing up with a mother who struggled with alcoholism and a third who lost a number of life partners to addictions. All have volunteered to share their experience with us. They are not clients of Jewish Community Services. In a home where addiction is present, the entire family lives in dysfunction. Emotional and sometimes physical abuse, constant state of worry. It's not just the addict that devotes themselves to changing old patterns, but also loved ones. The children, the parents, the siblings, the spouses, they also have stories to share, obstacles to navigate. I asked each speaker if they would describe what it was like for them when their loved one's addiction was at its worst. What was it like for them and then um, what was it like or what is it like for you? So whoever wants to go first, please. So for me, I remember a week before my mom passed away, she came into my room and she sat on my bed. And prior to that, this, uh, for the last couple weeks, we had been fighting and she had been drinking a lot and we just weren't getting along. And I was very upset with her and dealing with a lot of emotions. And she came into my room, she sat on my bed and she looked at me and she started crying and she said, I know that you want me to be a better mother and I wish that I was stronger and could give you everything that you deserve, but I feel like so empty inside. She, I remember she pointed to her brain and she was like, I feel like there's nothing there anymore. And that was, I think, one of the last sober conversations I had had with her. And I remember in that moment, wishing I knew what to say, but then also four years later, reflecting on that moment and thinking, wow, she was so going through so much um, struggle and, and self-loathing and, and really uh, just hurting so much. And I think it, being further out, I really started to empathize more with that. Um, so that I think was what I, I think that was the rawest I had seen her, um, which was actually weirdly when she was sober. Uh, There's obviously raw moments I saw when she was drunk, but I think that was very powerful because she was sober and raw. Uh, and then I think for myself, with when it got to its worst, again, I think it was uh, a few weeks before she passed away again, and I remember talking to my dad on the phone and crying hysterically, and all I could think about was, okay, my mom has this illness and my dad also has a different illness and here I am at 22 years old, I'm going to spend the rest of my life taking care of both of them and I don't know how I'm gonna achieve any of my dreams and it was a very overwhelming feeling. I know I called my dad and I was crying and I said, I just want it all to end and that again was a few weeks before she passed away and 
it's been interesting kind of going through the grieving process and having to forgive yourself for almost feeling like oh, I made this happen because I said it out loud. But I do think the more I talk to other people who've experienced it and do my own reflection, I realize that when you're living in it, sometimes it feels like are there worse things, you know, than death? Um, sometimes I think you're living in this evil kind of situation to no fault of anyone, but just this really the struggle and this addiction. So living in it was, was really, was really hard. Yes. And it, it's impossible to compare to what it's like not mm -hmm. living in it, um, unless you are to leave the situation. But for me, it was to the point where I, I was, oh, I felt like I was getting to my breaking point and I was like, how, how often can I continue to mm -hmm. do this mm -hmm. um, and live like this mm -hmm. in this home of dysfunction and addiction and mental illness? Mm. Um, I've seen my mom at a few different times when I, I thought it would be the worst and her turning point or breaking point, whatever you want to call it, um, where she would sit me down and she'd, I could smell the alcohol in her breath and I would look into her eyes. We'd be very close together. I remember a specific time um, when we were sitting on her kitchen table and I was across from her and she just looked at me and started bawling and you can see the pain and her story in her eyes they just seemed I'd never looked at her in that way before where I just I saw all of her emotions and her pain and as much as I knew I was struggling from what she was doing her addiction putting but I, I saw that um she was going through way more than I was with li living with the addiction. And um, she basically started telling me a monologue of how she thinks we're so similar and how um, she doesn't want me to end up like her, but she sees a lot of her in me. And it was, it almost sounded like she was planning on leaving and she just made it sound like this was the end and with tears streaming down her face and it was absolutely heartbreaking and I just had to sit there and nod my head and tell her it was okay even though I was hurting too. What was what were your thoughts what were you feeling at that kitchen table while you were seeing what you were seeing and hearing what you were hearing? Um, my initial thought was I need to like, is this the last time I'm going to see her? What is she going to do to herself after this conversation? But I was also thinking, what what can I do to help her? I, She's been to rehab 10 times at this point, and mm -hmm, mm -hmm. she's had specialists help her, and I'm just sitting here as a, I think I must have been 12 or 13, and I felt so helpless, and... Um, I just I couldn't understand that pain that she was having but I also felt my own pain and I was holding back my tears and mm -hmm. just seeing your mom break down like that is something yeah. yeah for those of us who have grown up in a home where there is substance abuse there is often a role reversal between child and parent this can feel particularly overwhelming for the child who has limited emotional and other resources to take care of their parent, no less themselves. So what if you are a significant other to someone with an addiction? 
the wife, the husband, the girlfriend or boyfriend, what is the impact on you? You know, the first one that came to my mind was just Herb, which is like, you know, my boyfriend. And because um, that really traumatized me when he, you know, overdosed and died. And, um, you know, being in recovery, the two of us used together. And then I got clean. Um, uh -huh. And then for a year and three months, I watched his addiction. Uh, just spiral quickly. Um, I just, you know, I, I, um, in one year he totaled three cars and he was arrested three times. Um, and I just remember he kept trying to, um, you know, like come back, come back and, um, you know, get to a meeting and, and try to get some time and just kept saying, I don't know why I can't get this. Like, I don't know why mm -hmm. I keep doing this over and over again. And um, all I want to do is just shake them and be like, don't you know what you have to do? It's so simple, you know, um, and try to be a power example. Like one of the things for me is that I, I you know, I, I always at that point, I tried to be a power of example and I just wanted to fix I don't know. All I know is that just one day I just didn't hear from him, you know, and that was on a Friday. And I got a call on Sunday and we had a conversation and obviously he had relapsed. And the last words that he said to me was, don't worry, I just have one stop to make on my way home. And I you can rest assured that I will be up, you know, and ready to go to work tomorrow morning, you know, at 8 a.m. And um. And that was the last conversation that I had with him. And then the next day I got a call around two o'clock um, from people in recovery letting me know that they had found his body downtown in a barn and he overdosed and he was gone. Wow. Yeah. And um, it was just like, you know, I mean, I knew that day would come. Right. I really did. But until it happens, it's like I can't even explain you know, what that felt like. I mean, I just wanted to get in the car and find him. You know, I wanted to get in the car. I didn't even believe it. Like, I, nobody, nobody knew anything. Um, nobody knew where he was. Nobody knew where his body was. He, no family here. Um, and then finally, when I was able to make a identification at the morgue on the phone, I had to call his mom and say, you know, um, he, you know, her, he didn't make it. How did it change you? I mean, for me, it, it, um, I mean, I miss him, you know, I always think about him, but in some ways it, you know, I want to say it made me stronger and, and, you know, there's, there were some positives that happened. Um, I just learned from it and it just gave me more reason not to, for me, never to get high again, never to use again one day at a time. So I did, um, in a good way, his memory kept me clean. Mm -hmm. And I was able to take all the pain and everything that was like bottled up inside and start giving back to the community. And that's when I started getting involved in the recovery houses. and 
What can I do to help? Because I needed something to do with all the pain. To try to save the addict from the consequences of their behavior can be really draining, exhausting emotionally and physically. Despite every effort on your part, the addiction seems to always win out and you get to a point where you just cannot continue. So I think in high school it definitely started to go really downhill. She lost her job and then in college kind of struggled to get herself out of bed and just slowly got worse and worse. And so when I got home, even being away from it for a year, because I did have this strong bond with my mom, I always I describe it as this living and breathing dichotomy of good and evil, our relationship. It's when she was sober and taking her medication for bipolar, she was the best mom I could possibly think of. I mean, she was someone that everyone wanted to be around. You know, she was captivating storyteller. She had this interesting past. She backpacked through Europe and had me when she was 41 because she wanted to live her life a little before she settled down. She served in the military in her 30s. I mean, she was just such a fascinating person, almost like a character in a book. And then on the flip side of that, when she was drunk or mixed her medication with alcohol, she'd become this very evil version of herself. And I never wanted to be around her. I mean, she became embarrassing and um, very verbally abusive and emotionally abusive to my father and to me, and I didn't want to be around her. So even being away from her for so long, I came back, and I was so excited to see her, you know? And you, it's kind of like you've said before, of just this a little bit of a role reversal. You kind of feel like, in some ways, they're your kid, mm -hmm. and you are excited to, I don't know, kind of hold them again, as weird as that may sound. And uh, so when I got home, I was so excited. But then, actually, the day I got back, my dad and my brother picked me up at the airport. And I remember saying, oh, where's, where's mom? And they were like, oh, she couldn't come. And so they're like, but you'll see her when you get home. And so I, you know, I walked in uh, the door and realized when she started talking that she was very, very drunk, uh, which is common for both addicts and people with bipolar, anytime you interrupt their routine, kind of really throws them off. Uh, and I think because she wasn't used to having us here. So anyway, uh, you know, walked in and quickly remembered how bad things were and that they've, again, got even worse while I was away. And so one night I was about to leave for a trip and I was packing and she was very, very drunk. And I remember kind of saying something like, are you seriously drinking? Like, and she was, she was drinking liquor, which was very different for her, but that was the only thing in our house at the time. She was a big wine drinker, um, which made her classy drunk, she said. Uh, and uh, so she was drinking liquor and I was like, you know, what are you doing? And then my brother and my dad were kind of like, just ignore it, it's not worth creating this big fight. So everyone, we kind of just did our own thing and then everyone went to bed. But I was packing and, and I kind of heard her fall out of her bed. And so I was very upset, but frustrated. And I was like, okay. So I got upstairs, went upstairs and, uh, and tried to pick her up. At that point, she was overweight. And, uh, and I was just like, what, you know, what are you doing? Like, I can't keep saving you over and over. Because at that point, it was rehab and emergency rooms and police coming to the house because loud disturbances. And I was just, again, so tired of it. So I, you know, I tried to turn her over on her side because I can't pick her up because I didn't want her to you know, harm herself. And I remember having this moment where I was like, okay, what are my options? Like my flight's at 5 a.m. Then, you know, for this trip I'm taking, I've taken my mom to the emergency room my whole life, again, like 22 years. 
my dad's asleep, my brother's asleep. Like, what, do I call the ambulance for the thousand, you know, millionth time, whatever, and uh, then have her get mad that we're spending money on ambulance bills, you know, this whole mess, you know, or do I, you know, she's going to wake up tomorrow hang hungover and apologize and whatever, we'll do it again and again. And so I kind of made a choice in that moment. I was like, I'm, I'm going to bed, I'll see you tomorrow. And then I woke up, I think like three hours later, and I remember when I woke up, I just without even going in my mom's room, I was just like, oh shit, something feels like something really bad just happened. And then I remember going to the bathroom first because I didn't want to go into her room because it was, and obviously I don't know, but I felt like I, you know, just an energy or something. And then I walked into her room and uh, found her on the floor and I remember just the image of her face blue. And I was just like, just completely in shock, and and then I you know went went to get my dad who was sleeping down in the basement, and woke up my brother and then it was just all happened so quickly, um, but it was it was one of those things I think going back to what I said in the beginning of almost wishing it would all end and then it was you know it was like okay well now it's it's done mm-hmm. it's over, and I remember thinking like oh for lack of better terms, oh fuck. Mm -hmm. Now I'm gonna see what it's like when it's over. And then I know, you know, immediately with the grief at first, it was like, oh, this isn't better. Like, no, 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 I'm gonna undo this. Let's rewind this, this. I take it all back as if, Mm -hmm. you know, like I had caused this by wishing it. And I recently heard uh, someone describe it as, it's like you're trying to crack this code when you lose someone, lose anyone from anything. But especially, I think a mother-daughter bond is very, very mm-hmm. sacred and special. And it was like you're trying to once you know once the person passes away, it's like okay, well if I can just do this or you know bring their memory with this way, and it's almost like even though you know it's not possible, you're constantly trying to like find the numbers to unlock the combination to reverse this terrible thing, mm-hmm. and then they'll be back. And again, you know on the intellectual level it's not happening, but your heart and your your soul want it yeah and I remember saying that even the first couple of years of grief just I love you know or you know my life is full of so many wonderful things and people but if someone said hey would you turn it all in to have your mom back and I was like yep take it all bring her back you know and and that's something I, I think about a lot because um, grief is intense and just learning to live without that person that Again, especially as a mother, I always, I always think of it like at one point in your life with a mom, a biological mom, at one point when you were in her room, you were two souls sharing the same body. You were literally a part of one being. Mm-hmm. And that in and of itself, I think. Very profound. Very, yes, that connection. Yes. And so I, you know, when she died, I felt that half of me died with her. While Piper was talking, anything come up for you? Your mom is still alive? And uh, any thoughts or feelings come up for you or Debbie for you? Um, well, I actually had a conversation with my brother recently um, where I was just having a really hard night. Um, I just was breaking down because um, I had a relapse of emotions and I just, I was fine and then one thing happened and then it, I went down memory lane and everything hit me and I just, I had no one to go to, but my brother and he was in the other, in his room next to mine and I went in and um, we just started 
talking about everything because I had actually never heard his side of the story because we that's not how our relationship was we um my mom was a very like secretive alcoholic we never saw the alcohol in our house but she would come home drunk and um so we just started talking about all the things that had happened to us and at the end of the conversation he said honestly I'm surprised she's not gone I'm shocked she's still with us Mm -hmm. and she if she keeps us up she you know she only has a few years more or whether it's her liver or she overdoses and with alcohol um so it's certainly something you've been thinking it's back yeah and that back of your mind that definitely stuck because I never thought about it like that Mm -hmm. um Mm -hmm. but yeah Mm -hmm. anything for you Debbie um, yeah, I mean, and just listening to you, I, I guess it really just brought me back to um, my son's father and um, how my son was four at the time, right before we split up, but, um, you know, his his drinking had gotten to the point where it was, you know, morning, noon, and night, and um, it was just really... It was really bad between the two of us in the relationship. And then, you know, on top of that, you know, you have this four-year-old little boy who's watching, you know, his family literally be torn apart. And, you know, it was just the same thing to, to sit back and to watch somebody, to watch the drinking progress to the point that it did. And um, I just remember that I was planning on leaving with my son. And I just remember, I said to him, um, because he, had, he knew it, you know, he kept saying, I have a problem, I'm gonna stop, I'm gonna stop, I'm gonna stop. And I remember saying, you know, just giving him, I guess you call it an ultimatum, but I'm like, look, here's the situation. He's like, I wanna get help. I'm like, fine, you need to go to rehab. Um, you need to go to rehab if you wanna stop. and you want to save your family, but, you know, uh, more so than anything, that you want to stop. And I just remember, um, I said, you need to let me know what your decision is later, you know, and then I, I, um, I had gone back to him, and, you know, he sat me down, and he's like, he's like, well, I thought about everything you said, right, and the way I look at it is, you know, I really have three options. One, I can go to rehab, you know, um, but then, you know, there's an extra expense because of the whatever, whatever the insurance doesn't cover and just, you know, blah, blah, blah. Number two, I could go to a detox for seven days this time. I've never done that. I could do that and detox and then come back and just stop. And number three, I can do what I did before, but do it like seriously this time and go to this, this doctor and get some Librium and do it myself. So I'm waiting, you know, I'm thinking, okay, you know, your wife and your son are getting ready to move out and you presented me what you think your three options are. And he said, so I, I think I'm just going to try this Librium thing again, you know, and I just remember I was, I was like, what, you know, like you, you're going to, you're, I mean, that's not going to work. And and I just, I was just devastated because it was kind of like, you know, number one, you had an opportunity to save your life and you're getting ready to lose your son and your wife, right? 
and the best option you can pick is the worst of the three, you know, and, um, and I did move out. We, we did leave, you know, and I guess it just brought me back because my son's father did die a couple years ago, but, um, it spiraled quickly after that. And, you know, the drinking was just out of control and, you know, to the point where it did destroy his liver and his kidneys and, you know, to watch all that. But I just remember, like, for whatever reason, um, you know, him having that decision and, and the choice he made mm -hmm. and how much it just, I mean, it just hurt, you know, it's just one of those other issues. It's just kind of like, we don't matter enough. Right. Um, if if the addict alcoholic would really care about us, right. then of course they would stop. Right. Can't they see the damage being done? Right. How did you guys stay sane, or how do you keep sane? What were what have been some ways that you found yourself uh, using to cope? Um, maybe some ways that are really healthy and maybe some ways not healthy. I always felt like, like my mom sort of had these two versions of herself. I too had two versions of myself. And I think a big part of that for me was that I was in this upper middle class upbringing and I went to this all girls prep school where obviously addiction is present, but it's really like, let's not talk about it or so I felt and I know one of my one of my friends says there's different types of there's different types of poverty and there's poverty as we think of it as not having a lot of money not having a roof over your head not having access to health care and education and whatnot and then there's a poverty in these upper middle class to upper class families where people are really really struggling in, in similar areas, you know, but, but she called it poverty of the soul. And it's like, oh, well, no, they have nice houses and they have nice cars and they go on nice vacations. They're good. And I know we know that it's not real, but I think I, I felt because I was in that environment that I couldn't share that with anyone. And so I remember when things got really bad, honestly, ever since I was probably four years old, I remember my earliest memories, my, my mom, when she would get emotionally and verbally abusive, never physically, but just whew, words are powerful. My dad would actually take my brother and I out of the house and take us to a cheap motel in the middle of the night. And I remember that when I was little, all the way up to high school. And I remember being dropped off at this prep school. And my dad was like, you know, get through your day. Like, I love you. Good luck with everything. And, and I'd walk through the doors and it was almost like, as I was walking, it was like, okay, don't, you know, like kind of like let go of what just happened and then open the door into this ritzy, nice school and, oh, who watched Gossip Girl last night? And, okay, yeah, I saw it. Yeah, like everything was great. I, I yeah. But really you had normal. spent the night on the run, so to speak, in a, yeah. In a motel, right. And so I felt like for me, in order to stay sane almost, because I, I, I've done a lot of thinking about this recently actually is, oh God, was that terrible that I put on this facade of, you know, oh, because so many of my friends now that I have opened up or once my mom passed away, they found out, they were like, that what was going on? Because they're like, wait, you know, you were class president and you did sports and you were so active and friendly and happy. And, and the more people I meet that I think have struggled with addiction themselves or, or family members with addiction, 
they are these people so often that, you know, put on this happy face and, and seem like just they look for the joy in different things. And so anyway, I, I think while I definitely was hiding part of it, which never feels truly authentic, uh, at the same time, I think it was a way for me to, to, to protect myself and mm-hmm. to cope and to, mm-hmm. to feel comfortable and, and be able to Makes put sense. myself in that environment and, and excel um, and not let the addiction kind of uh, take over and prevent me from doing the things you know, that mm-hmm. I wanted to do. Um, mm-hmm. so, so you bring out an excellent point, just like the addict alcoholic needs to be juggling constantly um, two different personalities until sort of the very end. Um, also, if you really love um, loved that alcoholic um, for a long time, you end up juggling two personas. Yes. Um, um, th- thank you for sharing that. How do you kind of keep your sanity when sometimes it's pretty uh, hard to do that at home? Um, I, well, when I was younger, mm-hmm. um, I never knew my mom as an alcoholic. I knew her as um, my mom who was allergic to wine. And um, so it never, I don't remember the turning point when it hit me that, she, you know, she has a problem. Mommy camp wasn't mommy camp it was rehab um and I think up until that point when I did realize that okay this is not all of my other friends what they go home to um it was denial that kept me sane um I tried I lived the a very like middle upper class same as you in the private school I've grown up at my private school it's always been my home away from home um where you know I expect that it's I don't know I don't look at my friends as or my environment as having these problems around them it's just just me and um and recently I found a lot of um uh I don't know um, other people other kids are experiencing um, yeah, but I've also, f- like, yeah, like that, but I've also found a lot of, um, comfort, I guess, in sharing my story, and, um, because I recently did that through my speech this year, and, um, it was a very liberating experience, just having it out there, and, um, and then people coming up to me after and saying, well, this is what, that's similar to what is happening in my family, and I was like, oh my gosh, it's not just me and I'm not alone in this. Um, but the other aspect of it is seeing addiction within my friends and the parties that I go to um, and kind of my method of coping and staying sane is trying to not, I, I guess, kind of control what's going on and um, preaching to my friends almost like this is real life, what you're doing now is could very easily affect you in the future and my mom is an example of that my story is an, an example of that um but yeah it's been I kind of keep to myself with my thoughts my head's always running on memories from things my mom did and um and yeah I think my 
best way to stay sane is sharing it, just letting it out, because I had held it all in for so long, all my life, pretty much, and now just realizing that it's not as taboo as, or it doesn't need to be so socially unacceptable. It needs to be shared. Healthy, unhealthy ways that you notice you tried to cope or have coped? Um, well, definitely, I, I've had both. Um, you know, one of, the, one of the things I think, no matter what I try to do, is like, you know, obviously find these outlets to hide in, these safe places to go, um, to just not deal with what's going on, you know? And that sometimes for me, you know, depending on um, what time, what part of my life we're talking about when I was going through all this, you know, I would resort to alcohol and drugs, you know, to, um, to medicate me. And, um, you know, but when that wasn't in my life, I would, you know, there was gambling. Um, I was a workaholic. And, you know, so a lot of, um, when, when all the turmoil was going on in my life, like I found my salvation through work and that had become my life. So there was a lot of um, just hiding out there so that I wouldn't have to really deal with what was, what was going on at home. And then, um, you know, then when I got home, just depending on the circumstances, I would either, I would find something to medicate, you know. Um, it could be shopping, it could be spending money, it could be um, just, you know, those were the main ones in gambling and just self-destructive behaviors and things to just get outside of myself. You know, I, have a pa I had a pattern of, um, and again, just being in recovery and somebody that was an addict and an alcoholic, of always getting in a, in a, in a relationship with somebody that was worse than me. So, you know, um, it always put me in that role where I'm the, one, I'm the victim. You know, I, I'm the victim and, and, you know, the other person always has the problem. And then, it, you know, in, in recovery, obviously, um, it was much easier to cope with some of this by going to Al-Anon or even just going to some of the, my regular meetings and, um, you know, just applying the steps, applying the tools that recovery gives you to deal with stuff like this. And, you know, the one thing that, the one message that I hear over and over again is, you know, you gotta keep the focus on yourself. You gotta keep the focus on, my, on yourself. And then once the secret was out. Mm -hmm. A certain liberation, was, like you were talking There about. was like immediate relief, you know? Like so much of that, like control and all the work that's into trying to keep everything looking mm -hmm. normal, like it's gone. If anything, it leaves a void. <laughs> Yeah. It leaves a void. You're it really does. A little bit, yeah. It does. Like yeah. I have nobody to fix. I have nothing. I have no drama. Like what am I gonna? What am I gonna do now? I, I gotta. Up. I gotta create some drama, of right. course. Um, but that's where, for me, you know, I just feel blessed that I have tools mm -hmm. that um, when this, when other people's disease affect my life, um, I now know how to start using utilizing them the tools to help me get through a lot of this we're only as sick as our secrets but once we share our secret there's such a sense of relief finally you don't have to carry this secret this shame this fear of being found out 
which has weighed you down and kept you from doing the things you know you needed to do to get healthy. At this point, I asked our group, now that you've shared this secret, what have you noticed? As far as my own choices, I think it was staying active and finding things I was passionate about. And it was, okay, when you're young, I mean, there's only so much you can do when you're in a household as a child and one of your parents is an addict. I mean, again, I was lucky that kid. they weren't both. But yeah, you can't get up, you can't pack your bags and leave, you know, until, you know, you're a little bit older so you can kind of fend for yourself. But as a four-year-old, you're not going to pack your little suitcase. And, uh, and so I think just kind of, kind of just finding, okay, what, what lights me up? What brings me joy? And as, as Maddie actually said before, her mom looking at her saying, I see all of the wonderful qualities that I have that, you know, that you bring out. And, and that's such a wonderful thing. And I think the same thing with my mom of, I definitely inherited some of the bad things as well that I'm working through, but the good things, I think I tried to bring those to life, um, maybe as a way, because I knew that she was struggling to do so. Just like the addict themselves benefits from being in recovery, so do those of us who care or continue to love an addict. We too are healing by sharing our stories, learning and unlearning from our experiences. Thanks for listening to this podcast. We invite you to listen to the other episodes in the series. If you or someone you love is battling addiction, you're not alone. There are resources that can help. Visit our website, ifiknew.org, click on the Get Help tab for listings of local Baltimore resources, as well as leading national ones. These podcasts are brought to you by Jewish Community Services in Baltimore, an agency of the Associated. We are grateful for their support, as well as the generosity of other funders who make JCS prevention education programming possible.